Did you know, did you know, that the Bible didn't originally come with chapters and verses? Those were added many, many years later. Many of the early manuscripts of the Bible, like these, didn't even have paragraphs or punctuation. The words all just ran together. These are actual early gospel manuscripts written on papyrus, the larger one on the left of the Gospel of Luke, written around 200, the year 200. Chapters were only added about a thousand years after that was written, about the early 1200s. And then um, chapters were added in the kind of mid-1500s to help people navigate the stories. Can you imagine trying to read that text with no paragraphs or punctuations or chapters or verses? These were all added later to help people to read the Bible. And there's a word for it. It's called paratext. Things added later to a manuscript that shape and affect how you read it. Like any book, the Bible's chapter headings and even subtitles help us to follow along with the text. It breaks it down into manageable and memorable chunks. It gives us natural stopping points. I always try to finish a chapter, you know, before I stop reading at night. At the same time, chapters and verses are not a perfect science. Sometimes the chapter break comes in an awkward place in the story. Uh, Like in our gospel reading today from Luke, this powerful reading about this woman anointing Jesus' feet with ointment, her tears, and her hair. And then there are those few verses at the end of the story that come at the beginning of chapter 8, kind of creating this artificial stopping point. It causes these few verses at the end to appear detached as an afterthought, but they actually shed a lot of light on this story. And just so you can hear it again, here's how they go. Jesus went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve disciples were with him, as well as some women who had been cured of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their resources. In the gospel stories, we hear a lot about the men, the disciples. But there were, in fact, many women who were part of Jesus' followers. Here we have a glimpse which makes sense because the Gospel of Luke often lifts up women more than any other of the Gospel writers. Bible scholars tell us it wasn't uncommon in Jesus' time for women to support prominent teachers and rabbis like Jesus, but it was considered unacceptable and even scandalous for them to be students or disciples. So you'd expect women to be part of this movement from afar, but not to be as integral as these women disciples were. What do we know about these women? Joanna, Susanna, Mary Magdalene? Joanna, scholars say, may have actually been one of Luke's sources telling stories as he was writing his gospel and compiling the stories of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. She was the wife of one of Herod's estate managers. She had been connected to powerful authorities. She was financially comfortable, and she may have left all of that behind to follow Jesus. Susanna was well-to-do of independent means. She provided material support to the Jesus movement, 
likely cooking and cleaning and sewing. And Mary Magdalene, the best known of the three, was healed, it says, of seven demons and became a devoted disciple of Jesus. These were women who had been forgiven and healed and called by Jesus, and they were utterly devoted to him. And into their ranks, into this sisterhood of disciples, comes this woman anointing Jesus' feet. The story goes that a Pharisee invites Jesus to his home to have a meal. And having heard that, the woman barges in to what I imagine to be a very proper meal with everyone gathered at the table. And she begins to weep, to anoint Jesus' feet, to cry, to wipe his feet with her tears. And everyone is aghast. The Pharisee is shocked and says, if Jesus really knew what kind of person she was, he would not allow this to happen. He was shocked and he was scandalized. She was trespassing. She was breaking convention. She was not supposed to be touching Jesus like that, first because she was a woman, but second because she was a sinner. Of what kind, we don't know. Jesus turns to Simon the Pharisee and says, do you see this woman? Do you see her? And he proceeds to give him a lesson on hospitality and most of all forgiveness, asking if somebody forgave two people, one 500 denarii, 500 days wages, and 50 denarii, 50 days wages, who do you think would be the more grateful, the most devoted? This woman. If I were to give this reading a title for today, I might call it Minority Report. After the Tom Cruise movie from 2002 by the same name, I seem to be on a movie spree lately in my sermons. The story of that movie was that uh, there was this, it was set in the future and there was this kind of pre-crime division that could anticipate what kinds of crimes people uh, would perpetrate. And there were these three precogs who could kind of tell the future, two brothers and a sister, Agatha. Um, and it was Agatha's visions of the future that turned the entire story, entire, turned the entire world around. One of the reviewers for the movie had said, her minority report pointed toward a possible alternate future. And I think that's what these women give us today, a minority report, an important but largely untold story. It represents all the untold and unbelieved stories, the stories that are drowned out by all the noise in our world, by our culture, by our discomfort in hearing them and holding them, our own stories that we hold close and dare not tell or speak. There's not just one story in the Jesus movement. The Jesus movement is made up of many, many stories, your story and my story, everyone's stories, all woven together into the story of Jesus, the story of new life and resurrection. And Jesus was so, so good at this, hearing those stories, telling those stories of those that found themselves on the margins that were unseen or disbelieved or derided or labeled or forgotten, including and especially women. Jesus asked Peter, or asked Simon, do you see this woman? Do you really and truly see this woman? Because Jesus says, I do. This week, like so many people, 
I have just been heartbroken and horrified by the Stanford race rape case that's been in the news this week. The injustice of the sentencing for the perpetrator, the blaming of the victim, and how her story is echoed by so many other victims of sexual assault. This week, the vice president wrote this survivor an open letter, and in so many ways, I think it's just like what Jesus does for the women in our story that anoints his feet. This is a little bit of of what he wrote. He says, I do not know your name, but your words are forever seared in my soul. I do not know your name, but I know that a lot of people failed you. I do not know your name, but I see your unconquerable spirit. I see the limitless potential of an incredibly talented young woman full of possibility. I see the shoulders on which our dreams for the future rest. He says, I see you. I join your global chorus of supporters because we can never say enough to survivors, I believe you, it's not your fault. Your story has already changed lives. You have helped change the culture. You have shaken untold thousands out of the torpor and indifference toward sexual violence that allows this problem to continue. Your words will help people you have never met and never will. You have given them the strength they need to fight. And so I believe you will save lives. I do not know your name, but I will never forget you. The millions who have been touched by your story will never forget you. These are powerful words to a powerful person, to one who found herself entirely powerless. It's a transformative moment that captures something of this encounter between Jesus and the woman as she kneels at his feet, crying, desperate. And he says, I see you. I see you. And Jesus sees us, each of us, our tears, our desperations, our broken hearts that we bring to him at his feet this morning, each day, and says, I see you. And we might wonder, what happens to this woman? What happens to the woman in this story beyond this moment? And I think those last few verses give us a hint and of an epilogue, an alternate future, and a promise of resurrection for her and for us. For this is the, not the last time that we see some of the women in this story. They each felt God's forgiveness so deeply that they stuck with Jesus through the end and therefore were among the first to see his resurrection. These are the women that stayed with Jesus all the way through the cross while the men, the disciples, fled during Jesus' trial and death and crucifixion and were held up in a room out of fear. It was the woman, women who stood by the cross It was the women that helped leave him in the tomb. It was the women who went out that first Sunday morning to find that the stone was rolled away. And those women are named, and among them were Joanna and Mary Magdalene, the first to know resurrection and the first to proclaim it to others. Mary saying to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. 
And if I let my imagination riff on this story as stories are meant for us to do, I think maybe this woman, this woman who was known and seen and loved and forgiven so deeply by Jesus, maybe this woman was there too. Having been seen and healed and forgiven, she too proclaimed, I too have seen the Lord. Amen.